0: Bismillah ar-Rahman alaykum and welcome back to this episode of the Qarween podcast This is your host Sara and I'm joined with my two co-hosts from last time Aisha and Noor And we're actually also joined by another sister from the Qarween project Aisha A, how are you doing?
1: Alhamdulillah, JazakAllah khair for having me on this time sisters um, Must say, I'm a little bit nervous First time doing anything like this but inshallah it's all... Um, will be all right please have patience with me if i mess up a couple
2: times but inshallah should be fine no looking forward to it, inshallah how are you doing noor alhamdulillah sarah all is well alhamdulillah we are back with our second episode um sorry we know we've been late we've been wanting to release this i uh, release our second episode a while ago alhamdulillah
0: aisha h how are you doing have you been
3: Alhamdulillah, yeah, not too bad. Um, I think everybody is a bit serious today because of obviously the topic at hand. But um, I'm grateful that we were able to get together uh, because we've been very busy, hence the gap from our first episode to our second. But I think that it's really important that we discuss um, our topic today and Alhamdulillah that we were all able to get together and do that.
0: Alhamdulillah, yeah, it has been a while since we recorded our first episode, uh, but we have been consistently working on improving um our audio quality and just trying to plan further for um future podcast episodes um and we it, we were actually planning on discussing this topic uh of populism um but incidentally a few days ago this incident occurred in Christchurch, New Zealand where uh, a white nationalist terrorist uh went to a masjid um and murdered about 50 of our sisters and brothers during juma prayer we ask Allah to accept them all as shuhada, uh, to have mercy on their souls, and we ask Allah to bring complete shifat and healing um, to all of those who are still healing from this um, in the hospital, all of the wounded, and to make this a means of expiation of all of their sins. So before we even get to talking about like this broader issue um, of populism, which leads to incidents like this happening, um, just generally speaking, none of us are based in New Zealand, but. Um, virtue of the modern world, like we're hyper-connected through the internet, we see regular updates when things like this happen, so what were your guys' initial reactions and just your um, headspace since hearing about the incident?
3: I think for mine, it was actually shock. Uh, I woke up, um, as soon as I woke up, I saw the news, because obviously of the time difference ahead, uh, it had been several hours since the incident actually occurred, and they'd already Uh, established that 49 people had been killed. And subhanAllah, that higher number in just one incident, I think that was really jarring. And it was quite paralyzing to think that something on this scale had happened. Uh, Part of my work is is, is journalism. And I write a lot of stories on things going on in in the Middle East. And obviously, when you're covering conflict and, and war zones, you you have to get used to writing about death and seeing an ever increasing death toll in many cases, but Subhanallah, this was just a really different incident. Just because I think of the the sheer brutality of it, uh, the fact as well that this was filmed and you know shared on social media and celebrated this isn't a, a conflict zone this isn't a war zone where these things as as horrible as they are as, as horrible as they are often do happen you you expect them in those circumstances this was something entirely different in a place that is known to be one of the, the the most peaceful places and tolerant places in the world so on so many levels it was just incredibly shocking and i think that only now has really the shock sort of started to wear off um But for many days, you could really feel that the entire Muslim community around the world was in mourning.
1: Um, Yeah, no, I think, actually, I completely agree uh, with what you're saying. And I think it echoes for a lot of our listeners and just Muslims around the world. Uh, When the news broke here in the UK, it was quite early in the morning. So I didn't. I didn't get the chance, actually, to to delve into all the news um, until I got home from work that evening. And I think it was all the details and just how deliberate and planned of an attack it was on a very peaceful... um, I mean, Jumar prayer is something that everybody can relate to, obviously. You know, it happens every Friday, like clockwork, around the world. Um, And the fact that the guide man filmed it, that he went in, that he attacked not just men, but also went in for the women and children, I think these were just the really, really chilling details. I mean, the fact that he'd written an 87-page manifesto, this is not a crazy person. This is a very deliberate attack. And I think that was really,
2: really terrifying to me. I think... For me, as it's for a lot of Muslims, it was a combination of um, frustration and disappointment. I mean, we were all, when while we were like mourning for the deceased, we all felt disappointed in the world that this kind of thing happened and it didn't actually find the kind of coverage that it deserved. Apart from that, just as Aisha has mentioned, the fact that it happened in a mosque was the, the, I think, the most brutal side of it. Because in any tradition, in any religion, places of worship are like sacred places. They are considered as sanctuaries even in the times of war. So as Muslims, we used to say this, like terrorism has no religion. So I think it makes sense. It, I think this actually is a great example of that because in no religion you attack a mosque or even in times of war there are like certain principles that you do, you do not harm women and children and innocent and while they are in state of worship just basic humanitarian universal principles I think we felt disappointed in the humanity and especially in the modern world, we, where we think that as human beings we are progressing to be better humans, but obviously it's not the case. Yeah, and um, that
0: speaks to, I think, personally how I felt. I, on the one hand, it's shocking, uh, but at the same time, and I, I think I agree with the sentiment that a lot of people have been sharing, which is that it's not unprecedented. That this is not um, some like random lone wolf attack um, but that this it's a continuation of the status quo of white supremacy um, and Islamophobia. So while it is extremely jarring, um, it's also, it, I don't know, I guess like a lot of people were not surprised to see it. Um, and at least like, I'm not proud to say this, but I spent a lot of time like on social media just scrolling. Um, I felt like I was looking for something, um, but I just like kept reading response after response. And um, I don't think that's the healthiest thing to do. But I think I was pleasantly surprised to see a lot of people were turning to the word of Allah And a lot of people were sharing uh, verses from the Qur'an And the words of the Prophet um that spoke about, you know, martyrdom You know, so I was like, I was happy to see that um, But at the same time, it, it's, I don't know Like a, a lot of the circles that I'm in when it comes to like community spaces Were also like messaging and being like, what do we do? How do we respond? Um, and that showed me... It sucks to even say that we need a protocol, but we still have not developed like a protocol for how to respond these things Every every time something like this happens, we're like we scramble to figure out how to respond And like that's the worst time to figure out how to respond to something like this because we're all like our emotions are running on a high um, And we don't want to act brashly Um, And then again, like I started thinking about like, okay, this happened It's, you know, like I'm trying to place it in the world of um like in this hyper-connected world where people have access to uh like semi automatic weapons um, and Muslims are vulnerable, what do I do now like what is my role in this um, and I think that what I realize is that the most powerful tool at my disposal um, is to recognize how powerless I am and that all power lies in the hands of Allah, and because of that, that's not like a source of despair, but rather a source of comfort. Because I know that I can ask Allah, um, and that Allah asks, He answers every sincere du'a. So that's like what I've been turning to as like my um, source of solace. And um, but speaking of, you know, the the fact that like we can um, that we're able to see like a lot of media response response from. Uh, community leaders politicians uh, on social media on the internet what are what are your guys' thoughts in general about the media response uh, following the incident
1: I mean I think it was um, and I know this has been said before but I think New Zealand's prime minister coming out and very quickly labeling it um, a terrorist attack I think there was almost a sigh of relief that yes okay The the gunman wasn't a brown person or an Arab person or a bearded person. But, you know, at least we've had the decency for someone to go and call them a terrorist because, I mean, that is what this attack was. Um, I think it's, you know, you've had all the solidarity. To be honest, I've been in a little bit... two minds about the way that the media's portrayed this attack. On the one hand, yes, you've got people who are quickly coming out and saying, yes, this is terrorism and, you know, not wanting to be like, look, you know, we call things other than, you know, Arab Muslim shooters terrorists too. But on the other hand, you've got the real hypocrisy of people like, for example, here in the UK, Boris Johnson saying things like, yes, you know, this is terrible, you know, that somebody's gone out and shot all these Muslims and, oh, how dare they and why has this happened? And you're thinking, mate, Literally, not too long ago, you're referring to Aniqabi sisters as letter boxes, and you're thinking that's not going to have an effect on you know what people think and how they react towards Muslims. Which in, in, in itself, to be honest, has been, you know, it's been really great at showing the hypocrisy of some of these people. And I'm not the only one who's picked up on this. I know a lot of my friends and a lot of people in my wider circle have picked up on this hypocrisy in the media of, on the one hand, they turn and they bow their heads and they say, I'm really sorry. But on the other hand, they spout all of this speech and rhetoric that is essentially what's fueled this gunman towards the actions that he's undertaken
3: yeah yeah absolutely I I agree with um everything you know you've said Aisha I think that for me as well that was actually the thing that it was like you know um it it just made it all the worse that when you're already in a time of 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 mourning and and grief it was really adding salt to the wound to then see people who contributed to this narrative coming out and, and, and condemning it from all over the world obviously there was a very um Famous statement made from an Australian senator, Senator Fraser Anning, who condemned it whilst in exactly sort of the same breath, almost the same statement, almost blaming the victims for having come to, my, for having to come to New Zealand in the first place, thereby in some way bringing this attack upon themselves. But even people who didn't go to that extreme, it was just exceedingly frustrating seeing anybody, everybody from Donald Trump to people like um, Piers Morgan in the UK, who's a journalist that has normalized the rhetoric surrounding this incident that has ultimately led to this that has ultimately led to something of this scale happening and even though there has been general condemnation of the attack there has still been differences in the way that it reporting uh, has has, has gone on compared to how a muslim terrorist would have been uh, reported on you can see even today there's many stories about how uh, he was bullied as a child and how you know he was bullied for being chubby and fat and therefore this sent him on a downward spiral that eventually led in him led him to commit uh, mass murder which I mean, is even not- say things like his
1: dad had cancer and I'm thinking <laughs> I work as it's a doctor just not loads of people have cancer they don't turn them into gunmen and shooters
3: a hundred percent hundred
1: percent and I think even sort
3: of those subtleties um people picked p- picked up on that and, and and that was depressing to see but at the same time Sarah as as you were I was scrolling through social media and majority of my timeline after a while was just that because I think people are very fed up with those double standards
2: yeah, as you said, Aisha, um, they're just, like, paying lip service while they're actually part of the problem. Not even the part of the problem, root cause of the problem. While a lot of people actually pick on Trump and other, like, far-right figures, um, there's this, like, uh, African-American Trump supporter in the U.S., this Owens, what's, what's, was that her name? That the mass murderer referred to as uh, one of the people he looked up to you, and one of the most imp- inspiring people for him i think like how somebody does something like this everybody has that questioning while people have different answers if you read far right newspapers this was he was an angelic boy who grew up to be a far right masculine because of video games or um he was a working class person or he was a, just a low-income neighborhood. You find all these excuses. But I think this is, this is not only even a far-right issue. It's something broader than that. It has to do with um, the, the continuous demonization of Muslims um, following 9-11, and the war on terror, and the constant rhetoric that's fed by both left and right. And more recently... The white supremacist ideology um, laid out by the likes of Steve Bannon. Actually, there are a lot of parallels between the 74-page manifesto of the mass murderer and Steve Bannon's kind of rhetoric about immigrants and how they are actually invaders. Um, the um, attacker, the mass murderer, is also talking about a genocide going on against white people and this is something this is like very it does not sound unfortunately unfamiliar to any of us because we got used to this kind of rhetoric about Muslims and immigrants and people of color and then I think why these white supremacists are actually carrying out these attacks given that people like Trump and there are like other far right leaders are actually on the rise they have their leaders in power why are actually they are Are they carrying out these attacks?
0: Noor, you're touching on a lot of different points. When people start talking about, like, how does this happen? What are the root issues? There sometimes is disagreement between, like, is this, uh, like, a very recent phenomenon? We're talking about, like, the election of Trump and much more recent elections of right-wing parties uh, throughout Europe, even in India. Or is this a much longer-standing issue? And I think that there's truth to both. Um, that anti-Muslim hatred and bigotry um, and white supremacy like on a global scale from even prior to like really the advent of imperialism like we can go back to talking about like the Reconquista in the Iberian Peninsula and the expulsion of Muslims and Jews uh, from Spain like that is, we can say that that's the root of this and that this has like much deeper roots but it develops with time, right? It develops differently um, after like Uh, black nationalist movements during the civil rights act it develops differently after 9-11 so we have to like look at the deeper roots but also look at okay more recently how have these things developed because um like white nationalism is not we, we it's not necessarily a recent phenomenon but the maybe the ability for somebody to um take inspiration through the internet through like internet forums um talking about like that you know like internet forums that have been spurred on and have really got a just gained a lot of audacity since the election of people like Donald Trump um that is a more recent manifestation of this that is like how what really leads somebody to um like acquire like such like military-grade weapons and like go commit and act like this so um when we're talking about like root issues right uh we bring up like this topic or this term that's like called populism um which is not exclusive to white nationalism but is a good way to think about it um can we first define that before we really um get into like what it means um in this context
3: yeah, Sarah, I think you've touched on a really important point that it is about finding uh, the root issues. Uh, in terms of populism, I think actually there is an interesting speech that Noor sent to us in, in preparation for this episode that we wanted the, that she found interesting, that we wanted to watch, uh, which was Steve Bannon's speech uh, in November at the Oxford Union. And he really went into defining populism as very much rooted in economic uh, and political disenfranchisement of the white working class, at least in his reality within the United States, but also something that he saw very much in Europe. And he credited these problems that had been created by the global financial system, is uh, particularly after the 2008 financial crash uh, and a growing inequality and seeming a growing divide between the ruling elite and normal white working class people as something that had contributed to the election of of, of Donald Trump and the rise of the far right overall, because it was about getting in touch with people's, uh, what, what, what they wanted, or what at least they thought they wanted. And a very big aspect here is the illusion of taking back some level of control. And in in, in the UK, people know this slogan very much because that is something associated with Brexit, that when people voted to leave the European Union, the Leave campaign operated under the slogan of take back control. And really this extension of populism though, I think it is to an extent also defined by that, where people see invaders, or what we would otherwise just know as immigrants, people with different backgrounds, different culture, coming and settling in their countries and they at the same time are having all of these economic and political grievances and essentially the immigrants are being made as a scapegoat to which they feel that they are not assimilating or integrating into our culture and therefore they refocus their efforts around re-establishing what Bannon at least calls civic nationalism he very much denounces this idea of an ethno-nationalism which is obviously what people throw at the right and the far right because that is obviously got connotations of racism he rejects that and he says no that this is just a civic and economic nationalism and in order to sort of and, and accompanied with that is obviously taking control of borders not letting certain people into the country who are not going to help and it perpetuates obviously the same myth about migrants you know just utilizing the economy or, or utilizing the political system for their own gains but not actually becoming part of the of the culture but I think that really populism in itself what I got from his speech was that it was it's a defense mechanism actually it had very few specifics uh little to offer in terms of economic or political governance other than vague promises of you're going to be able to change your surroundings by taking back control really I think that it's Trump and, uh, you know, other manifestations of the right have normalized this narrative, but it is in its essence just very similar to what you see of the far right in terms of being very individualistic based upon uh, an ethnic nationalism. I think it's hard to differentiate the two.
0: Yeah. And when you mention um, how like the Trump Uh, administration like kind of utilize this rhetoric about like the disenfranchised white rural worker Uh, what comes to mind for me is the invention of like race as a concept to begin with largely has roots in um kind of the beginning of uh Atlantic slavery like in what became the United States the division between like black and white really began as a uh a mission on behalf of slave owners, white slave owners who were wealthier, who controlled um, the population at large, what they saw was that an alliance was being formed between black slaves and the disenfranchised whites um, who just saw each other on like class lines, right? Like that they were um, just like the impoverished of society. And the way that um, wealthier, the white, the wealthier white ruling class was able to separate those two and like kind of, you know, like use a divide and conquer strategy was to um, inculcate this concept of racial white supremacy. And, like, by drawing this divide between, uh, like, the enslaved Black population and poor Whites, uh, it kind of, like, they tried to give poor Whites a sense of supremacy over Black slaves, Black slaves, um, so that they would not ally with them. And that is, like, really how the concept of White supremacy developed, um, was to just, like, use it as um, a way to, like, almost appease, like impoverished uh, pop, like white population by showing them, no, you're not actually, like, you're not the bottom rung of society. Black folks are. You're actually better than them. And that, like, it creates, like, a divide, right? Um, so I think that that's yeah, it's important. it's all reactionary. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why even like during, after, following the Trump election, when a lot of people were trying to analyze uh, voting statistics about who was voting for Trump, and people were saying, you know, oh, th- like his support came from this like poor white rural base. When you break down the statistics, you actually find that the average Trump voter's income was higher than that of like other candidates. Um, and that a lot of this rhetoric is like actually, you know, it, it's empty rhetoric and it, um, it, creates like a like a victimization narrative like you were talking about that makes it seem like that white society is being invaded from the outside right and that now like we have to they have to react and protect themselves against it um, when really not only is that a myth in that like there isn't really um, the crime coming like from immigrant immigrant communities in the US in Europe and in places like Australia and New Zealand as well, Um, that that is made up, but also it's just a historical and that it doesn't even like talk about why immigration is occurring in the first place and how it wasn't until, um, like colonialism ravaged the homelands of people who are coming from immigrant societies that, you know, um, that people started leaving those societies and immigrating to, uh, wealthier, more developed nations. So that, like that whole rhetoric really needs to be broken down and, um, we have to see like how populism is utilized to draw people in um and to like make people feel like they have to defend themselves against anything like you were talking about it as a defense mechanism right
1: yeah i mean those are both i mean such profound insights honestly um i was just gonna add to that by saying it sort of ties into as well with the whole idea behind nationalism and patriotism i mean something that's Based on the bond between people, based on geography and just locality, you need an external threat. You need some sort of um, cause for you all to fight and agree upon um, to, to keep you all together, using to strengthen that bond. If everything's happy and dandy, you'll start turning in on yourself and looking for problems there. Whereas if there's an external threat to focus on, for example, the immigrants or the Muslims, then there you go. Let's all band together on this.
2: And it's also a great psychological trick because human beings are emotional beings more than they are rational beings. You can just you can tell people that they their fears are are irrational or Muslims or immigrants are not invading their countries. Their numbers are a lot smaller and they're not posing threats to white people. But if the 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 far right media and these far right figures are constantly eliciting fear. Um And using fear as a tool to control um their constituencies and mobilize the masses it 's actually another level of a- awareness we need to address, and like when we are actually addressing people, we should know that um, we should also appeal to their emotions, the positive emotions they have rather than fear, but more like mercy and like what we have in common
0: yeah, and on the topic of um just again, trying to make sense of like where uh, inspiration for these things happen and happens and uh, how populism develops to the point where people feel the need to defend themselves against some type of foreign invasion. Uh, Just using the New Zealand incident as an example, when we look at the perpetrator and the like the symbolism that he was uh, invoking in um, his manifesto, which is like I don't know how many pages long um, and also like even on the gun that he was using um, there's a lot of symbolism on that a lot of dates referring back to um, like past uh, terrorist incidents like connecting to um, even like the Bosnian genocide uh, so it, that would to me was just like evidence of the fact that this is not an isolated incident um, that it has precedent. And also it shows how populism is not bound by like national borders, right? That he's taking inspiration from like other countries from uh, incidents like from like before in history. So while uh, like in some ways it's important to um, put these things like in their context and their national context, there's also like very much an international, a global nature um, to this issue
3: yeah yeah definitely i think that what we've really seen in this in this incident is the brutal marriage of populism and Islamophobia because obviously populism in itself could be against multiple minorities as you said, you know, if it's particularly if it's rooted in white supremacy, it's against people of all ethnic backgrounds, it's inherently racist. But what we've seen here is a particular focus on Muslims and his manifesto was very much specifying Muslims and Islam as the greatest threat and as you said, had reference to other incidents in history that involved Muslims, not just things even like the Bosnian genocide, but even revenge against the Ottoman Empire for various campaigns that they had conducted. And I think that we can't underestimate these links because that is, going back to what Nora was saying earlier, the product of the war on terror as well in creating that image of Muslims and Islam as an existential threat that when coupled with this rise in populism that we're seeing across the world results in that specific targeting of Muslims and at a Muslim place of worship they didn't just go to a Muslim area or you know a shop with a lot of Muslims in it or target hijabi women they went to a mosque because that is the most obvious symbol of Muslims uh, in the West in this day and age. So. It's definitely something that you're right, Sada, you know, we need to be aware of um, and, and, and yeah, link it all up because there are people who would play down this link. But we need to show that it's coordinated.
0: So now that we, you know, we try to make sense of um, this situation and others like it and look at the root issues. What do we do next? Like as Muslims, um, we can't be sitting ducks, obviously, like we have to uh, tailor our response um, to this incident. But what do we what, like? What do we do now?
1: I think, I mean, I'm sure my two co-speakers can comment on this much more thoroughly. But I think init- just initially what I've seen so far of the response um, has been quite um, reassuring in a way. So previously, when attacks have happened on Muslims or in the Muslim community, it's always, it's, you know, thoughts and prayers, it's let's give charity. It's it's all these um, very heartfelt but temporary sort of measures, whereas this time I noticed a real difference in that um, people were talking about, you know, this is, you've got to look at the bigger picture. This wasn't just a one-off crazy man. This was, you know, look at the effect the media has had, look at um, the rhetoric since 2001, one nine eleven. what's, you know, all the events that has led up to it. And I think, I mean, a lot of people that I saw, they were very good at isolating sort of um causes but i think one thing that i'd really love to discuss with you guys is solutions so we've all found causes of uh you know why people like tarrant has come out and done this horrific attack but what can we do or what is a solution for the
2: muslim community and
1: the muslim world at large for something like this to never happen again
2: i don't know if it's like for us to think about the solution because i don't think it's our fault but what we can do to ensure that these type of things that don't happen to us could be just holding people accountable like for example a lot of times like when as far as the policing and surveillance goes the state uses states generally use i mean in, this includes the US this includes other governments they are, they use their policing appar- like apparatus and their policing expenditures on muslims And why are they not, this guy was not even on um, any watch list or anything. And he, in his social media account, said that, talked about actually um, his horrifying thoughts and taking them into action. And nobody did anything. And he was filming this live on Facebook for 17 minutes. And no algorithm whatsoever was able to detect and do anything about it. I think it's, I think for us, the best thing we could do is hold people accountable and also be grateful to people who stand with us. And for we know this um, woman in New Zealand who hid one of the um, wounded uh, Muslims in her house. I mean, probably she risked her life while doing that. And there are a lot of people who show support um, to Muslims. and we shouldn't be whom we criticize like we should not make generalizations about white people or christians or people in the west because there are a lot of people who stand in solidarity with muslims too
0: yeah and no you mentioned um an important point about the policing apparatus especially when it comes to short-term solutions and short-term reactions a lot of muslim communities are talking about increasing security at masajid um and this is something that like I think that we just need to be more cognizant of the fact that if you grow up black in the United States, you don't grow up thinking that like, that you can like you don't call the police when you need help like the police are not a source of safety you don't see them as like a source of protection so when a lot of masajid are thinking about like calling local police in order to increase security while i completely understand why like people see that as a source of security and protection it's not a source of safety for everybody and that's really why that's this is one of those places where we have to hear out people's individual experiences and i can't speak for the black community and their experiences you have to hear them out because otherwise like if you grow up thinking that like yeah i can call 911 i can go to the cop at the mall if somebody like harasses me or whatever and then you then your automatic reaction to one of these incidents is going to be yeah we need to up security but for that's not an option for everybody then that's not a solution for everybody and i'm not super knowledgeable about this issue like of security but i do think that there is at least like a conversation to be had about um private security and about training our own community members Um, to be able to protect our communities and like talking about self-defense. I think some Muslims um, are allergic to talking about that because um, they think that's like like militant rhetoric or talking about, you know, um, defending ourselves. That's not because we don't talk about that because we enjoy like that we don't want to have to defend ourselves in any situation and we don't like violence is not glorified in the islamic tradition but it's part of the sunnah to be able to defend ourselves because we have a responsibility to our community so that conversation has to be had um, in a way that's serious in a way that you know like we can't just sit around and be like afraid of talking about self-defense like it Every community organization, every church, every synagogue has some form of security and Muslim communities should be doing the same thing. And and while we're having that conversation about security, we also have to be cognizant of um, like how different people, different segments of our community, like what relationship they have to the police
1: apparatus, to um, like the militarized state. I think obviously in terms of practical first steps, um, so obviously, if there are crazy gunmen and copycat people out there, then yes, I agree. Um, you should do what you can to try protect yourself against this threat uh, that now, though we've been talking about it for ages, is manifested in the most horrible um, way. But I do think it's important to remember, especially in these rather terrifying times as we do, whenever there's an attack against Muslims, that Allah is ultimately the best protector. And, you know, I think this ties in with something that really gave me a lot of solace when initially I heard about the attack and I know a lot of other Muslims felt this as well that subhanallah you know these people died as martyrs inshallah like you know that you know although you know as Muslims we shouldn't and we shouldn't fear death really we don't fear death because we know that if you've lived a good life then you know to him we belong and to him we return um and so whilst it is pertinent that we do look for uh, and try protect ourselves as best we can ultimately you know our lives are in the hands of allah and we should seek protection in him first
0: yeah very true and we understand um that like we belong to allah to him we will return um and that every like allah's will um is what conducts this world and at the same time Allah has ordered us to to enjoin good and forbid wrong and he has told us in the Quran that Allah doesn't help a people until they help themselves so that like we need to we we can reconcile those two things right like having tawakkul and reliance on Allah and also being responsible for our own actions and a sentiment that I've seen shared uh following the New Zealand incident um is this idea that like we Muslims globally and I hate to say it, but like on the international stage, the blood of Muslims is cheap. There's nobody who, uh, there's no political entity that defends Muslims, that stands for the Ummah, that, yeah, that represents us um, on the international scale. Things like this can happen because like we don't have backup in, in like a meaningful way, right? Um, and so a lot of people have been saying that you know if we had uh like a political like a muslim state we can call it a khilafah or like just some sort of like representative entity like we would be able to protect muslims globally um, and that that's what we should work for and i understand that and something that in order to understand um, what is like the role of this like having a political entity what I found really helpful was uh, Sheikh Hamza Maqbul, actually, like, he records a lot of his talks on SoundCloud. Um, and a few weeks ago was the anniversary of the abolishment of the Ottoman Caliphate. And he mentioned something um, in that talk that was really profound. Um, and he said that, you know, we understand that we have this, like, fard kifaya, this communal obligation to exact the hukam of Allah on the political stage, right? To have khilafa but at the same time like when khilafa is not being uh, actualized externally when there isn't a state the khilafa of the individual internal khilafah as he puts it um meaning like uh, allah tells us also that like here we are khilafah on this earth um that we are vicegerents of islam on this earth that that never ends like the caliphate sure that's abolished but individual responsibility to carry islam never ends and also when people talk about like looking towards like political self-determination and khilafa as a solution, like we really have to ask ourselves, are we acting like Khilafah? Do we conduct our local communities in a way like, are we able to organize ourselves politically on a much smaller level? Um, and I think that really it begins with this like internal um, individual purification and understanding our individual obligations and this is not to discourage people from like seeking community organizing efforts or um, seeking to like acquire political power those things are important but there's also there's like a level of there's an order of priorities and I find it ironic when people talk about um, how we need to organize politically when there are like much more immediate personal obligations and yeah that includes salah it really it starts with prayer it starts with dhikr if those are not being fulfilled like how do we think that we're going to be able to like to organize politically, and I, I think that that we're obviously we're no we're in no place to judge people's individual practice of their deen, um, but we have to be real with ourselves to begin with. Like if we really want to um, seek meaningful political self determination, then we have to be real with ourselves on an individual level. Am I fulfilling my bare minimum um, obligations that I'm going to be immediately accountable for in the akhirah before I start thinking about like um, communal obligations at the same time we realize that like, we have our fard we have to make sure we're fulfilling that. But also the fard kifaya, the communal obligation, it's not on like a couple people in the community to fulfill that. If the fard kifaya is not being fulfilled, everybody in the community is sinful, right? So we all have to be thinking about that. Um, but yeah, it does start with just questioning ourselves and thinking like, are we acting like khulafat?
3: Yeah, thank you so much, Sara. I really agree with so much of what you said, and I'm really glad you brought up this angle to look at it, because I think that if we need to learn anything from the events of the past few days, it's to recognise that condemnations are are not enough. Already, we're seeing at the time of us recording this podcast that there is an attack that has happened in Holland. And as yet, we do not know the motivation for that attack, we do not know the uh, perpetrators, um, whether he was influenced by his religious or his ethnic background, or whether it was just a lone wolf incident or, or he was mentally disturbed. We don't know that right now, but we can already see the way in which the media is treating this as perhaps something in revenge for New Zealand attack. Is there some kind of link to ISIS? And Everything that Muslims have been saying over the past few days about Islamophobia and the narrative about Muslims in the media has gone out of the window and we're back to the same old standard strategy. So I think that if if anything we have to realise that we can't spend our lives just correcting the media, you know, it's never going to be enough. And this draws even more attention to the fact that having a representative muslim voice on that global stage uh, and a political represent a political voice uh, in the form of something like a khilafah as you're saying is incredibly important and to be honest i actually see the benefits of this in well when we look at a comparison which may be an odd comparison for some people to think about but the comparison of israel where obviously anti-Semitism is a big problem in many European states and recently where there have been incidents of anti-Semitism, it, the Israeli Prime Minister has actually come out and, and, and condemned those the, the, those instances and has called on European officials to do more and he's put pressure on governments to mm-hmm. f- define exactly what anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism is such that people can be prosecuted for it, to make very strong statements against it, to clamp down on people having a certain narrative about Jewish minorities in these countries. And this is an influence and power that we as Muslims, we don't have because we don't have that political representation. As to the issue of us, obviously, you know, not neglecting our other individual obligations and recognising our own personal roles as Khulafa, that is definitely something that should be at the forefront of our minds. But I think the same way that we wouldn't advocate for someone to only fast in Ramadan or only give charity once they've perfected their salah we should equally recognize that this is an obligation that we must work towards in the present also. Because as you said, this is a fard kifaya, it is a communal obligation. So they're joint fara'id, they're joint obligations, they complement one another. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in in Surah Ra'ad verse 11, that verily I will not change the condition of a people until they change what is within themselves. And I think that, that this speaks to us on both an individual level, as you were mentioning, but also Allah addresses us as qawm, as a collective group of people in this ayah so ultimately if we as a collective do not envision do not demand and do not seek change as a community and as a global ummah then Allah is telling us we're not going to see that in reality he will He will not aid us in 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 our in our vision in that respect so I'm really glad that you addressed this alhamdulillah and I feel like it's a it's a topic that we might come back to but um it's it's, it's definitely something worth mentioning in regards to this conversation
0: yeah thank you for mentioning that and um I think we want to bring this episode to a close. I think we've addressed a lot of just the different angles from which at least we understand like the roots of an incident like the one in Christchurch and also like how, what are we supposed to do in the follow-up to that. One last thing that I do want to mention, um, I was talking to my dad about like what had happened. um, And you know, he mentioned to me the fact that like the people who were killed in this incident are shuhada, like they're martyrs, they're martyrs in the sight of Allah. And I hope everyone recognizes that when they, when you see the pictures of these people um, shared on social media, you're looking into the faces of people who have been honored by Allah. Um, And we are not worried about them, you know, like we know that they are like with their Lord now, but we are worried, we should be, remain worried about ourselves because we're still alive in this dunya. We're still being tested. Um, We're still gonna be held accountable for our actions. So really to be concerned about Um, our own actions. And something that really beautiful that my dad mentioned when we were talking about this was actually that um, Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab when he was serving as the caliph, uh, he would make this dua um, and people considered it like a kind of a strange dua because he would ask that Allah would make him a martyr. Um, And he also asked Allah to to take his life in the city of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in Medina and this was weird because you know Medina was in the hands of the Muslims um there was no really opportunity for jihad or warfare in Medina or in the surrounding areas so to hope to die as a martyr there um was like kind of a strange dua but as we know uh Sayyidina Umar he did die as a martyr in the prophet in the masjid of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and so and we know that like it, Allah answers our duas So as we continue to um, think about our personal obligations um, and our response to these things, we turn to Allah, we seek refuge in Him, um, and we ask Allah to grant us the best of endings. With that, I think we'll go ahead and wrap up this episode. Please check the description of the podcast for the link to the launch good. People globally have been raising money for uh, the Christchurch community. Um, So please make sure to check that out, Uh, donate what you can and share it um, in your circles continue to make dua for the community and for our ummah globally really stay tuned for future episodes from us uh, we hope to continue communicating with all of you on on social media in future episodes you can keep up with um, all of our regular publications on our main website which is qarawiyinproject.co and we're on facebook just at the qarawiyinproject Project. And our face, our Twitter handle is Qarawiyin Proj. That's Qarawiyin P R O J. Uh, keep up with us, talk to us, and keep us in your duas. Jazakumullahu khairan for listening. Wassalamu alaikum, wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.